Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Dr. Roger King. Roger is an adjunct professor of finance at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He is one of the founding directors of the Tanato Center for Asian Family Business and Entrepreneurship Studies and the Thompson Center for Business Case Studies at the university as well. Roger is currently non-executive director of Orient Overseas International, which is listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And he's also a supervisory board member of TNT Express, which is listed on the Amsterdam Exchange. Roger was the honorary counsel for the Republic of Latvia in Hong Kong SAR and has been a close friend and mentor of mine for a number of years. Today's discussion revolves around entrepreneurship, the Asian family office, and corporate and family governments. Please enjoy my conversation with Roger King. Hi, Roger. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for joining. For the audience uh, tuning in around the globe, perhaps you can uh, give a little uh, introduction. Who is Roger King and what do you do for a living? Sure. Uh, well, Jay, thank you very much for inviting me to participate. Okay. My name is Roger King. I'm an American-born uh, Chinese, uh, now living in Hong Kong, and I've been here since uh, 1975. I grew up most of my life in the United States. Uh, I actually uh, did spend a little bit of my childhood after World War II in Shanghai. Uh, that's where my uh, parents were originally from. And uh, we went back to uh, uh, Shanghai uh, immediately after the war. And uh, so we actually stayed there until communists came. And in fact, I had two brothers that lived in uh, China. Uh, myself and my sister were born in the United States. My father went to uh, uh, school in the United States to uh, do his master's degree in political science. And uh, so after, during the war, he was working for Bank of China. And it's uh, interesting because uh, my grandfather, uh, paternal grandfather, was the first president of Bank of China for Zhejiang province itself. And my maternal grandfather, he was actually the head of uh, the uh, savings division for uh, the entire bank itself, okay? So naturally, my father was working for Bank of China after he finished school and uh, uh, in, in New York <laughs> itself. So uh, this is where I and my sister were born. And we went back to uh, Shanghai late, uh, actually December 1946. And my two older brothers, they were actually being taken care of by my grandparents. And so actually, I didn't get to see them until 1946 uh, after returning. And uh, so we actually stayed in uh, Shanghai. And it was actually uh, you know, a typical Chinese family. We had lots of cousins living under the same household. And uh, sometimes uh, being the, one of the younger ones, I, I was actually uh, you, you know, the uh, uh, punching block for all the cousins as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when the communists came, we actually stayed in Shanghai because my grandparents uh, originally planned to uh, move to um, Hong Kong itself. And uh, actually, during the war, World War II, they went to Chongqing. And after the war, they came back to uh, Shanghai. And also Hanzhou, my paternal grandfather was Hanzhou, and my 
maternal was uh, Shanghai. But, uh, you know, they thought this thing would blow over, and so they decided not to move. In fact, uh, they were in the process of moving to Hong Kong, and uh, the uh, household goods and uh, was on a ship uh, on a way to Hong Kong, and actually uh, outside of the harbor of uh, Shanghai, it hit a mine. So the ship actually sank. Oh, yeah. uh, but we did recover everything, but uh, obviously... Uh, a lot of things were damaged, water damage itself. So we stayed in Shanghai. So anyhow, it was, it was very, very interesting. The uh, communists came. We saw them coming in. Uh, the uh, warming down had already left anyway. So uh, we stayed. And until actually about 1951, my older brother, who is actually four years older than I, for some reason, he decided to join the PLA, People Liberation Army. And actually, because of that, my father decided, well, you know, he didn't want all of us to join the PLA necessarily. So we all left for Shanghai, uh, sorry, for New York. And uh, uh, my mm. older brother stayed uh, as a, um, a PLA soldier in China itself. So we went back to the uh, United States and my father was uh, trying his own business and import export and, you know, during during that period of time, Korean War was actually very, very difficult to do any import-export, uh, particularly from uh, China itself. So right. it was very, very difficult for ethnic Chinese to get a job in the uh, United States, uh, especially if you have a degree in political science. So after his uh, import-export business did not really work out, he actually, the only job he could find was working in a Chinese restaurant as a waiter. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you, you know, obviously uh, when he went to uh, United States, there were very, very few Chinese uh, studying in the United States. And uh, he's, I suppose, considered from a privileged background. Right. And uh, so, you know, to be not able to find a job and uh, can only work uh, as, a, as a waiter, uh, that was, uh, you know, quite an eye opener. But I think it was okay. Uh, and even for my brother and I, uh, you know, for our summer jobs, I was a dishwasher. Uh, my brother was a busboy in a restaurant, you know. And I, I, I actually tell my children and grandchildren about these things. So I want them to understand, you know, life isn't always as, you, you know, you, you see today. So I'm actually very, very grateful that to have that experience, okay, and I, uh, of course, uh, uh, received my education in the United States. I went to uh, University of Michigan for my undergraduate. And uh, after that, I actually uh, was in the NROTC program, which is uh, Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps. Mm -hmm. And after I graduated from uh, Michigan, I actually uh, joined the, uh, uh, was a commission officer in the U.S. Navy. But it was also very, very interesting uh, thinking back, Jay, in those days, Whilst I was signing up for the uh, NROTC program, the interviewer, he kept saying many, many different things. In fact, I thought he was really trying to talk me out of joining. Really? And what he was really trying to tell me is that, uh, and I only realized that much later, there are no Asian commission officers on a ship. Wow. And the only Asians in those days on a ship were Filipinos uh, working in a galley. Huh. So this is the background itself. Uh, I wanted to fly. Uh, I, I always had a passion for flying and ships 
And uh, so unfortunately, my eyesight was not good enough. So I actually served on an aircraft carry for a number of years. Okay. Hmm. Uh, that's also a very, very interesting experience because uh, my undergraduate was in electrical engineering. And so uh, uh, naturally, when I got on the aircraft carrier, I, I was assigned to the electronics uh, division itself. Hmm. And a lot of our equipment in those days required a uh, secret clearance or top secret clearance to have access to. Interesting. But I had declared my brother was a PLA soldier. uh, And so the only clearance I can get was secret clearance. And the, the, the space or, you know, we call a space that the rooms, okay, on board the ship was classified top secret. So the people that reported to me, they can hide in the room. I couldn't even go into those rooms because it was top secret. Okay. Wow. Again, you know, all these, uh, I wouldn't call it prejudice necessarily, but uh, clearly, you know, I wasn't necessarily being treated as a- any other uh, normal American was. Okay. So that that's sort of the background. Uh, after I uh, finished the Navy, I went back to school. Then I uh, got a job with a company called Bell Telephone Laboratories. Uh, then I worked for, for the military research. And again, you know, I was only able to get secret clearance, uh, but many <laughs> of the projects were so-called top secret projects itself, okay? And I actually worked for them for five years. And uh, at that time, I was also pursuing my uh, PhD in electrical engineering. But I actually had a very, very, well, I was, I think for some reason, I, when I was young, I was very entrepreneurial and I always mm-hmm. wanted to do my own thing. So after uh, uh, six years at uh, Bell Labs, I actually started my own company, and I had the opportunity to come to Asia. So in 1975, I actually came to Hong Kong itself, and uh, with the help of a number of people, including my father-in-law itself, and uh, so I started my business in the electronic and computer distribution, and I was very, very happy that business actually grew very, very nicely. I represented quite a number of brand names. And uh, in fact, it became one of the largest, uh, if not the largest uh, distributors of uh, computer products itself. This company, ultimately, I sold it to a company called Jardines. uh, And uh, so it was very, very interesting. And I also had many, many other businesses in between. So to a lot of people, number one is I'm a serial entrepreneur. And also, I tend to buy businesses that uh, have a little bit of problem, and I try to resurrect those things. Right. So uh, I've been written up as a company doctor in that sense. Okay. <laughs> uh, having said that, I did not finish my PhD program, unfortunately. Okay, which I ultimately did, uh, you know, after retirement. Uh, right. So anyway, this gives you a little bit of background. Uh, you, you know, I used to run offshore oil companies. In fact, I'm the uh, one of the first ones to uh, sign a an agreement with CNOOC, yep. which is China National Offshore Oil Company, to drill offshore oil in the South China Sea itself. Uh, we we're also the first ones to build jack-up rigs in Hong Kong. Again, that uh, that was under my responsibility, and uh, so it was. Uh, I have had a very very interesting life, uh, including investing in companies like uh, Pacific Coffee, and in fact, I was one of the largest shareholder of Pacific Coffee when when we finally exited. Really, yeah. wow. Yeah, in terms of return, you know, this is one of the uh, good investments. Uh, in Pacific Coffee, I think I invested something like uh, 75000 U.S. dollars. And uh, ultimately, uh, I was an angel investor when I exited. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
this was uh, worth uh, $8 million. My, my $75,000 wow. became $8 million. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's a nice return. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't really uh, calculated the IRR on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've uh, done uh, quite a number of different things. So let's uh, just give you a little bit of background. And of course, you know, uh, into my retirement, I uh, continue to serve on the board of the uh, company called OIL, Orient Overseas Container Line itself, uh, which is a company founded by by my by my father-in-law, and uh, he's also a very very uh, interesting fellow. He was one of the largest ship owners in the world, and uh, you know, he never finished uh, secondary scoop, wow. and uh, he was able to at one time. He had amassed over uh, 150 ships itself. Okay, so wow. he's done done very very well for himself. Okay, and so I was on on the board, uh, and I during a very difficult period of time, I also was involved as the COO of the company itself. So that gives you a little background. After my retirement, I did go back to finish off my uh, PhD. But instead of uh, finishing it off in electrical engineering, what I did was actually finish it off in finance uh, at uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and of which afterwards I, I became an adjunct professor of finance. But mm. uh, the area I'm very, very interested in and that I focus on is family, family business itself. Okay, so I am the founder of the Tenoto Asia family business and entrepreneurship studies at uh, HKUST. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a little background. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, you know, Roger. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, you, you, this was actually abbreviated because I know you're a modest guy. There's a lot of holes in there. I know that you did a lot more other very interesting and, and, and memorable things in your career. I, I remember hearing stories about you telling me when, when you were working at various listed companies on their board and helping them turn their businesses around as well, doing the old company doctor thing. But thank you for the introduction. You know, one of the reasons why I asked you to to join is, uh, like you said, because of your expertise uh, in Asian families and uh, sort of the Asian family office, uh, which is a notion that is actually quite different from Western family offices. When you think about Western family offices, you think about people like the Rockefellers or the Kennedys or some of these very, um, you know, old, traditional, very wealthy families. Uh, And the concept of the Asian family offices, I feel much younger. Not to say that it's uh, less wealthy by any means, because there's a lot of wealth that's been generated over the last couple of generations in Asia. But I wanted to ask you uh, maybe for a, a broad strokes overview of what the different uh, differences are between the Asian families and the Asian family office, if you will, uh, and your traditional Western families and family offices. Okay, Jay, uh, thank you for asking that question. Because, well, first of all, there's no clear definition of what a family office is, okay? And uh, the interesting thing is that it's a Western concept that's uh, gradually uh, coming to uh, Asia itself. And, you know, in reality, a lot of families do have a family office, but it's an informal structure itself. As far as the investment aspect is concerned, very often it's part of their operating company's uh, treasury function that uh, does the investment arm, okay? Right. So, so what, and the other thing about 
Asian families, they tend not to trust outsiders very, very much. They prefer to have things kept to themselves. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the idea of a hierarchical, matriarchic society, they want to make all decisions themselves. And of course, many of them are very, very successful businessmen. But in terms of investment, they're not necessarily uh, that skillful. So yet at the same time, they they want to make those decisions itself. Mm What's really very, very interesting is that, uh, you know, if you ask these very, very successful Asian business person, especially ethnic Chinese, what is more important to you, family or business? Inevitably, most of them will say the family is more important than their business itself. And then you dig one level deeper. And what are things that are of interest to, to you and are important? And this is where the notion of what I call three Ps is very, very important. The first P is wealth preservation itself. And of course, you know, the idea of preserving wealth is hoping that the next generation actually have a better life than the earlier generation, because many of the successful entrepreneurs in Asia in recent years, many of them do not have formal education. Mm-hmm. Chinese and uh, many others that uh, you know have uh, the uh, Confucianism uh, concept itself. Education is something that's extremely important. So if you see these wealthy people, they put a lot of emphasis on educating, making sure that the next generation are well educated. So this is very, very important. So the idea is they have a better life and opportunity to have the best education possible. The second, what I call P, is that harmony preservation. And, uh, you know, a lot of families, unfortunately, you know, when they have become wealthy, they have all kinds of family problems. And it's, it doesn't make sense to create wealth, then all you see is the subsequent generation fighting over the wealth itself. So the notion of wealth preservation is very, very important. The third is what they call legacy and value preservation itself. You know, every family uh, should have its own value system itself. And of course, uh, the uh, ethnic Chinese families tend to follow the Confucianism structure itself. So what I see is that those that are willing to form their own family offices, they should really think about these three Ps. And it's not just wealth preservation or investment. They should go beyond that. And it's a talk about harmony as well as uh, legacy. Legacy very often is, uh, you know, families form charitable foundations in the name of ancestors. And this is uh, one way to preserve their uh, legacy itself. And harmony, of course, you you know, again, you you know, how do you maintain harmony if, uh, you know, financial is the only thing? So you actually have to go beyond financial issues. So the way I see most ethnic Chinese families is, you, you know, the what they really want is and what they consider important are the three Ps, wealth preservation, harmony preservation, and legacy and value preservation. So that's the way it should be structured. In Hong Kong today, there are not that many formal family offices, but gradually that issue is increasing. In China today, actually, to our knowledge, there are no single family office in existence. There are a number of different organizations that are forming what we call multifamily offices. Mm. This is, again, you know, you're sharing resources to reduce your costs, but basically it doesn't address the harmony as well as a legacy issue very, very much. 
interesting overview. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I think I think that was uh, pretty comprehensive. Now, I want to drill down a little bit more on uh, not the investment side, but some of the other the other two um, sort of pillars of what Asians Asian family offices basically uh, value and prioritize as well um, for successful family union. Uh, So you read about a lot of uh, some of these wealthier families, uh, particularly in Hong Kong, uh, and you read about them in the news, sadly, because when when the succession happens, the brothers or, you know, the, the next generation often squabble and fight over the inheritance or the shares of the family business that was owned. And this goes from everything at the very top levels of, of uh, you know, property and, and the, the richest to even sort of uh, the second layer down below to like restaurant businesses that were once owned by, you know, decent sized families. But then as soon as that first generation passes that down, the, the brothers squabble over that. So what, what are some things that uh, can be put into place to prevent this sort of squabbling among siblings because you know it's very sad when 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 you see a large family like this um destroy all the the hard work that the the first generation has put into building up this this sort of wealth and and this family and you know you yourself coming from quite a large a very successful harmonious family you know what are what are some of the what are some of the tools that you can use as a as a patriarch of of this sort of large family to keep your family together Right. Well, it's a very, very uh, good question. It's very, very appropriate. You know, where you see the squabbling or disagreements, it usually is, uh, is surrounded by financial issues itself. Okay. And, and it's unfortunately that they, you know, these people, their value in their family, it seems like it's all financially related. Okay. And uh, in reality, this is, you, you know, of course, financial is uh, important. But for most of these families, honestly, you, you know, how many meals a day can you eat? Is there, <laughs> you know, even if you add, tack on a, an additional zero to their net worth, it doesn't change their lifestyle. The lifestyle should not be changed because of financial things. These, again, it comes around in terms of uh, the value system itself. You, you know, uh, like on my father-in-law side, he was very, very frugal. And, uh, you, you know, he, he leaves that legacy to all of us. And so my children, as well as my grandchildren, we understand the notion of frugality. We don't tend to waste things, okay? Mm-hmm. And we also have frequent events for the family members. We get together once a year, uh, at least uh, uh, collectively as a family. And usually we have uh, all 80 people together and we actually spent three days physically in uh, Disneyland, Hong Kong Disneyland. And uh, it's actually quite, quite interesting. And everybody's enjoy it. Uh, you know, Hong Kong Disneyland is a little bit small. So for the senior generation, it's actually quite good. We don't have to walk so much. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, also the next generation, uh, I would say the third generation, you know, they actually have their own social website. And every, every, almost every day, there are new photos being posted and this and that and so forth. And when we talk about these gatherings, you, you know, we're talking about people from all over the world coming to Hong Kong. You, you know, today, the next generation is spread all over the place, you, you know, and this is also very, very important. Uh, so 
you know, if you use pure financial means to keep everybody together, that's not going to work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for example, you, you know, well, even in our in-laws family, you know, where, where, uh, it's a reasonable size, a shipping company, it's a listed company itself. They're basically full-time third generation. There are only three people physically working on a full-time basis yet everybody else is somehow contributing to the overall welfare, including business, including investments, including charitable organizations, as well as family historians, writing books, uh, so forth about the family itself. And these are things that, uh, you know, it's very, very important. So the idea is stay connected, but not because of financial things. And uh, you want to stay together because you enjoy each other, not because uh, uh, somebody's holding a big party and we are attending a party. Okay. So that that's uh, very, very important. And uh, I know uh, on my in-law side, it's uh, it's a very, very close-knit family. And even on my own family side, uh, you, you know, well, we, they, most of them are in China itself, so we do not meet frequently. But, you know, my aunt, uh, who is 99 years old, every time I visit Shanghai, I make sure I give her a call. And, of course, I like to bring her some presents as well, you know, right. and uh, keep track of my cousins and so forth and so on. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the thing is the focus on the family should be in our family itself rather than the financial thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. And I think that the, oh, some of the older, older notions and, and family values that get passed down from, from some of the older generations, uh, especially within Asian culture are important to pass down to future generations. Um, and it's sad when you see those things lost. Now, here's another question I have for you, Roger, is that oftentimes when it gets down to say the second or third generation, not all of the dependents or descendants, if you will, uh, are interested in perhaps what was once the core family business. And so what would you suggest that a family, a larger family do in a situation such as this? Maybe they're not inspired or they're not motivated to contribute in that particular way, whether it's manufacturing, running their grandfather's manufacturing business, shipping company, property development company. Um, what are some creative ways that you can keep the family gelled together uh, and still be able to provide uh, a role for some of the, the younger generation? Okay, that's a very, very good question. You know, we recently, uh, together with my colleague at the HKUST, we actually did a study on ethnic Chinese families that survived more than 100 years. Mm. And, and what we saw was that one of the key components uh, and common amongst all those uh, sentences well, those uh, uh, family firms that survived more than 100 years, is that the ownership issue is a notion of pruning of ownership. So you simplify the ownership itself, okay? Uh, this is very, very important because you say some are not interested, so why not take them out? So this is, you know, they still can be part of the family. They can take it out. The other thing is that uh, you know, the notion that I talked about in terms of uh, family my suggestion, and we do this ourselves, is to create an equivalent to an angel fund mm. and provide that for a younger generation to pursue their passion itself. And if they want to be in business, uh, you know, you can fund those. You become the angel fund for, for the young people that want to do things itself. Another thing is that if you look at our center, the center name is Asian Family Business and entrepreneurship study. What do I mean by entrepreneurship? I really mean entrepreneurship within a family itself. Let them, you know, 
businesses today, if you stay stick with the same business model, you, you know, it's inevitable you, you're going to be, uh, uh, in, you know, in a sun, some sort of sunset industry. So the idea is why not encourage uh, people to actually expand on their existing business with new ideas or whatever. And uh, those uh, family firms that did survive more than 100 years, ethnic Chinese family firms, actually they diversified both the geographic as well as businesses. So they use the leverage off of their existing business. They move into uh, related businesses and, and also geographically uh, expanding. So that, that that's uh, very, very important. And, uh, you, you know, the uh, pruning of ownership is also if someone's not interested, why why force them to, you know, just be a coupon clipper? Uh, and, uh, you know, you're always going to run into conflicts because those that are running the business and own part of the business, they're interested in keeping the money in the business itself to expand, whereas those that only have shareholding, they're interested in, you know, dividend stream. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a basic conflict. So why not just, you know, come up with a reasonable scheme to buy those that are not interested in the business and let them exit, okay? And you still can pool your money together to invest in new things, okay? And uh, on a personal basis, for example, I have one one of my grandson, you know, he is actually very, very interested in music. Mm-hmm. So he's already expressed to me he wants to be a musician. Now, in the olden days, for a Chinese <laughs> to suggest you want to be a musician, you're going to say, "What's what is that, you, you know? And to be a musician is not something you uh, strive for, okay? In fact, he went to his other grandfather. He said the same thing. He wants to be a musician. And the other grandfather said, oh, that's a very, very good hobby. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm more of a person, let people pursue their uh, passion itself. Mm. In fact, uh, when I'm teaching in class, I uh, often been asked by people, you know, how do you select the, uh, the successor to your family business itself? Of course, in this part of the world, we very often practice the notion of primogeniture, meaning the firstborn son usually right. takes over the business itself. Uh, this is actually, you know, sometimes people say, actually, the firstborn son should not be the successor. Hmm. The reason is the firstborn son tend to be very strict, very disciplined, but they have one flaw is that they tend to be risk averse Mm. and and, and so if you're risk averse today you you know how do you continue your business uh yeah and in fact i always tell people there are four key characteristics for selecting uh uh, successors uh and i say what are these cckp the first c is commitment are they committed very often i run into people that are in the family business they're there because it's an obligation. They're not, you know, their mind is really not committed itself. Second is C is what I call self-confidence. You know, very, very often nowadays, you, you know, life expectancy is longer. You know, you go to the office, the father that's uh, maybe uh, 80 years old, he's also in the office. Yep. Every single day, he's telling you, why did you do it that way? I should, you know, you should have done it this way. So, you mm. know, uh, his... Uh, 55-year-old, 60-year-old son, you know, he, he, he doesn't have confidence itself. Right. K is knowledge, okay? Of course, you, you have to be very knowledgeable about your existing business. But the key about knowledge today is what are the disruptors to your business? Hmm. You have to look into what are the disruptors. You know, 
five years from now, 10 years from now, what's, what's going to replace your existing business itself? Right. So this is very, very important. So P of the K, CCKP is passion. Without passion, forget it. So this is what <laughs> I tell people. If you want to select someone, forget about the birth order issue. Why not think about CCKP? I think that makes perfect sense. CCKP. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, sometimes, you know, what's, what's tradition and, uh, you know, what's always been the way doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way or the best way potentially to carry forward. Um, well, Roger, thank you so much for that overview, uh, of, of sort of the Asian family office. Uh, we, we appreciate that. I'm sure the audience, uh, really was uh was fascinated to hear uh your views and and your you outlining how the asian family office is actually structured and 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 the challenges and and some of the the uh the headwinds that we face over here um as sort of a final question um what where where do you sort of see like the china you you mentioned earlier the china family offices there there weren't hardly any uh, do you see that situation changing as the wealth, uh, you know, starts to create and generate uh, on a more broad basis across China? Um, you know, Hong Kong obviously has a quite a longer history and uh, a lot more wealth development historically, uh, but now we're seeing a shift. And so a lot of the Ch mainland Chinese are earning a lot more money and there, there will be uh, more family offices, or at least families that have wealth, do you see them going down the uh, the same path that you sort of described earlier that you were uh, referring to the Hong Kong family offices? Well, it's a very interesting thing. You, you know, uh, today in mainland China, there uh, for those people that started a business, it's basically about 30 some odd years ago, and they're now thinking of uh, succession, succession planning issue itself. Of course, uh, one of the challenges that with a single child policy of uh, the uh, early years, they only have one person to pass it on to. So they don't have a, the uh, luxury of selecting who, if they want to pass it to somebody, you, you know, their direct descendant. Yeah. But recently, it was very, very interesting. The uh, uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University, as well as uh, Beijing University, did some survey on the next gen. And it turned out that 80% of the next generation do not want to join the family business itself. Mm. So that creates a major, major issue itself. In fact, we're now uh, structuring a course specifically for family wealth creators is how do you exit from a family business itself, which uh, requires uh, something. So incidentally, of the 80% of people do not want to join family business, most of them actually want to start their own business, which is totally unrelated to the family itself. Wow. So the question is that, you know, if you think about it, and I always tell the younger generation, because many of these are Western educated, uh, and they come back, uh, they also have some Western concept itself. So I said, you know, you guys are very, very lucky guys, gals, okay, first, actually, you have the ability to absorb the best of both cultures, the Western culture as well as the uh, Asian culture itself. Uh, that's very, very important itself. The second is that instead of thinking about your family business when you don't have a passion to, to, to enter into, but, you know, in Asia, relationship is social relationship is still very, very important. Why not capitalize on family relationship or family 
financial capital. These are two things that you can use to start your own business. Okay, mm. uh, or uh, you know, th this is one way to do it. And of course, you need to help your father or mother. How do they exit the business as well? So you can actually maximize the wealth of the uh, uh, business that they started many, many years ago. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, is there any exciting projects or speeches or talks that, that you're working on right now uh, or your center, your team there at the university is working on that we can uh, look forward to? Yeah, I mean, our center is, uh, you know, we have uh, basically three major objectives. Uh, one is, of course, uh, education, and we continue that process. Uh, the second is the research. And I just uh, mentioned one research that we did was uh, the uh, 100-year-plus uh, mm -hmm. ethnic Chinese family businesses, what are the key characteristics, and so forth. So we recently also are, uh, did a uh, research of uh, comparing overseas Chinese family businesses to Jewish diaspora family businesses. There are many, many similarities and, of course, some, some uh, differences. You know, the kind of cultural comparison is very, very important. And how do we learn from other cultures uh, mm. the, the best parts of them? And uh, we continue to do that. We, uh, I also mentioned this uh, issue of birth order. And uh, we're doing some research on birth order. And we have tried to do this on a quantitative basis to have some uh, key statistics uh, there. So we have many, many uh, other things. The third objective of our center is actually, I think this is also one of my mission itself, is to bring academics together with practitioners. Mm. Very, very often, academics tend to be very quantitative in their research, yet uh, they have very little exposure to practical issues on family, family business issues itself. And of course, practitioners do not actually understand how academics can help them. So we actually have events. We bring people from both sides to you know, meet and understand each other and hopefully not just ourselves, but other people can carry on what we have done. Okay, so this is very, very important. So then the idea is bridging the gap between academics and practitioners. Right. Well, it sounds like you have your hands full, Roger. <laughs> uh, well, I, I dye my hair great so to gain respectability. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for sharing your insights on uh, on the Asian family offices and your uh, obviously your very diverse and, and interesting, fascinating uh, history uh, and the work you're doing at the university. Uh, so uh, we uh, appreciate your time and uh, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been an honor. Thank you. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.